I'm Carrie Adams, and you're listening to Carrie's Connoisseurs coming to you from Solid Gold Podcasts. Here we talk to the movers and shakers, the drinkers, the dreamers, and all the people who make it happen in the liquor and luxury industries from around the world. Well, welcome to Carrie's Connoisseurs, and today in my studio, I am joined by James Ush. He is the big major domo in the red wine cellar for the KWV. James, hi, thanks for joining me today. Okay, thank you very much for being for letting me be here. Well, it's seconds away around two. I have to concede in front of everybody that I made the biggest, fattest you-know-what up today because we'd arranged this interview and then I got carried away on a Zoom call somewhere else and I stood James up. I'm so sorry. I'll publicly apologize to you. It's awful. I'm sorry. So thank you for coming back. Thank you very much. James, i tell you why I phoned you in the first place, because Gudrun Clark sent me uh, uh, an email a few, maybe a week or two ago, about something that I think is quite fun. It's called Drink That Bottle of Wine Wednesday or whatever it is. It's that <laughs> bottle of wine that's in your cellar or in your cupboard or in the cupboard under the stairs or wherever it is you keep your wine. And every time you go in there, you sort of kick it around, and or it's a special one. You keep thinking, I want to keep that for a special occasion or whatever. So some clever person has come up with an idea that says the 25th of February is called Drink That Bottle of Wine Day. So you guys turned it into Drink That Bottle of Rudeberg Wine Day, which is yes. why I'm talking to because you, Mr. Rudeberg. <laughs> No, I have to say it's a great concept and now it uh, justifies all our other wine drinkers that normally drink on a Thursday night uh, to actually drink another bottle. I know. So now you and I, I hope you've got lots of time because Rudeberg is such an interesting, fascinating part of the South African wine landscape going right back to day dot. And when I was a little girl, I had cousins they were the fancy rich side of the family. We were the poverty-stricken Irish potato farmers. And they had a farm that they sold grapes to, to the KWV. And in return, they got what was called a quota in yes. those days. And sometimes their quota was Rudeberg. And whilst it was never fabulous wine, and I'm just being dead honest because it wasn't, it was very interesting wine but it became a cult wine because you couldn't get it because the kwv exported it all around the world didn't they yeah 26 countries in total exported back in the day so i've laid a sort of a little foundation tell us a bit more about the history of this cult status wine because it is i love it and it turned 70 i think last year did it in 2019 so we're on well, 74 i remember the they sent me a yeah, they sent me a bottle and there was a beautiful big celebration. It's an amazing brand. You take it away. Okay, it's, it's definitely, it's a heritage brand. Like, it, like we just said, it's 74 years at the moment, starting way back in 1949. Uh, and I have to say, to be a part of this majestic history is definitely a daunting thing. It's definitely exciting as well. Uh, but, you know, taking it way back to the 1940s where KWV produced two red wines, which actually was called Paul Light-Bodied Red Wine and Paul Full-Bodied Red Wine, um, where in growing, with as industry did, uh, developed into, uh, when 
Dr. Charles Niehaus took over in the 1940s. Um, and that's Charles Niehaus, not Carl Niehaus. We're just no. making it quite clear for everybody. Yeah. <laughs> Dr. Charles Niehaus. Yeah, Dr. Charles Niehaus. And, you yeah. know, he came up with, with this brand uh, called Rudderberg. Um, and he's, he's obviously from a small town in Germany called Rottenberg. And when he was looking at the Palm Mountains, um, saw this beautiful sunset and called it the Red Mountain. And from that, kind of the Rudeberg uh, was born. Uh, going yes. back to the most simplistic way of thinking where, again, uh, there, were, there was two brands or two Rudeberg wines, one labeled number one and one labeled Rudeberg number two. The number one wine was the light-bodied red wine, which was cab-driven. From memory, they made it out of Pontac. Didn't they used to make Rudeberg was, was made out of Pontac? Yeah, yeah. so the, the main varietals back then was Cab, Shiraz, um, Pontac, and a little bit of Sinso. Uh, yep. That was the cultivars they used back then. That uh, was it, yeah. Obviously, the, the second wine was Shiraz-driven, and that was the Fuller, Fuller Rudeberg uh, wine. Yeah, and I think... I think that the Shiraz originally came from Merendal. And yes. I was doing a tasting with a with a gorgeous little boy from Merendal. I can't remember his name now. I've got COVID brain. You have to remind me who the little winemaker is there. And he, we were tasting through all the Merendal wines, and I was reminded again, it's an old farm. It's like one of the oldest farms in the Cape. And I was tasting all that. The wine is delicious. It's juicy and berryful and sumptuous. And that Shiraz, and we spoke about Rudeberg at the time, and he said to me that the Merendal used to supply Shiraz yes. to the KWV for Rudeberg. Yes, so that's also when the blend kind of took a different form. Yeah. When it started developing not only from Pontac and Cab to bring in Shiraz to get that more bigger tan and juicier fruit uh, yeah. where it evolved into a full cultivar blend. And tell me, when you... I mean, you haven't been... You haven't been the head red wine maker at Rudeberg for, I mean, at KWV for very long, have you? No, no. So a actually, year or a bit? A year and a bit, yeah. So it's, mm. uh, I have to say, still still learning a lot and fitting into the system. But I have to say it is a honor to, to be here and so many opportunities and really exciting stuff uh, that's happening. It's an amazing place. So explain to us who aren't in the know because the kwv was always quite a mysterious place for the rest of the people in the industry we we didn't know how it was all working how is it all set out now do you head up all the red wine making uh all the red making sorry all the red wine making in the big cellar yes uh, so basically we are divided almost in brand orientated uh, so we are three senior winemakers at the kwv uh, which we have Isel from Blair. That's the I love Isel. Yes, we yeah. always talk, and she makes gorgeous wine. Yes, so she heads up the mentors range. Um, basically, I then handle the, the entire red cellar. So that is from the bigger cathedral, Rudeberg, and all the brands going downwards. That's a big job, uh, James. James. <laughs> yeah, so not such an easy job, that. Hey? So that's around about seven thousand tons in production in total, and around about. Let's say eight million, uh, eight million liters of production liters. on a yearly. Um, it's a bit of a mind what's it, you know. <laughs> you don't even want to think about that. So now, the, does the KWV still own those vineyards, or do you lease vineyards? Do you manage the vineyards? How do you make it happen? No, uh, I just want to get to. Sorry, my last colleague that I left out was Kubis van Herve, and he Kubis, is, of course. Yes, and he is in charge of the bubbles, the rosés, and the whites. Uh, so, 
I have to say, we three work in a quite a nice, uh, nice setup. Yeah, it's nice. We have we learn a lot from each other. We're quite a dynamic team as well. Do you each have your own seller? Yes. So you don't get in each other's way like now in the middle of harvest when you need the tank and she needs one and he needs one. So luckily, each have your own one. Luckily we do. Uh, we've got enough tanks, but there is one or two equipment that is normally a bottleneck, but then proper planning and uh, normally gets us around that curve. Um, it is and sometimes who's making your brandy? Who's so brandy making the brandy? Is then Peter de Pot. He is our brandy master. Peter de Pot? Yes. Peter de Pot still? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, yeah, he is a magician down there uh, and really he has, is a magician. Uh, knows a lot, obviously. Uh, but, yeah, but getting back to the vineyards. Um, so, at the moment, we don't own any vineyards at the, um, anymore. We, we lease them and basically, so contracts are, are written. So, we've yeah. got long-term contracts and short-term contracts, uh, really starting from Marmesbury all the way through to Port River. Um, which is round about, like I said, in total, we do a production of 13,600 tons, uh, which wow. is out of five different areas and around about 430 different vineyard sites. So tell me quickly for my listeners, if we start in Malmesbury, yes. or start wherever you like, and tell us what grapes are coming from which area that you're looking after in the red wine cellar. Well, like I said, our South Africans... Um, are definitely a dynamic bunch. Um, and I'm, the reason is why I'm leading with that is we believe in one area we have the best Shiraz and right next to it, the best Cab. So literally we have a, quite a dynamic portfolio in all the areas. Um, from Marmesbury, mm. you know, we dominate uh, in the Swartland region with the Shiraz, Cabs, Do you? I'm sure you do. Yes. Some of those beautiful old Shiraz vines, hey? Yes. They're and all then, gnarled and old and bony and they just give the most delicious grapes. And then definitely we've got some weird and wonderful cultivars as well out there like Tanat and Petishira, uh, which is also from that region, so some Malbec. Are you using those in blends, hey? Yes. You don't produce, although I think Izal made a Petit Bordeaux from the Stella in the region. Mentors. Yes, and yeah. then we have also a Petit Bordeaux in the classic range that we also do. Um, mm. Mm. which last year got uh, best best strange cultivar at Michelangelo um, for recently yes. priced wine, which is quite nice. And tell me, Tanat, because we all... Am I correct in saying that Chateau Mouzard is Tanat? It is. One a, of the problem... It is, hey. Yeah. The first time I think I ever tasted Tanat was, came from Chateau Mouzard, which for everybody else is in... <laughs> Lebanon, or somewhere that we shouldn't be, Yemen. I don't know where those things are coming from, but Chateau Mouzard is famous. And I wondered, because our growing, uh, our geography is not dissimilar to that of where the Tanat comes from in the yes. Middle East. It's hot and it's dry, and I, I'm sure that that's what the Swatland's for. Yes. I haven't tasted your Tanat. Do you make a single cultivar or do you blend it? Fortunately, we, we blend it. We use it as a blending tool, uh, but I have to mm. say... If we would definitely do a art cultivar, that would be my next one on the list. Um, it's, it's interesting and delicious, hey? Yes, it has got the most amazing, I want to say, acid backbone, which is just a natural acid that it produces. It's got this nice uh, raspberry, wow. mulberry fruit that comes oh, out of I it. Oh, I know. Uh, no, really a nice When we were little, with. there used to be a cold drink. There used to be like a, a cordial called Rabina. Um, 
or fortress. I don't think you kids even know that that's such a thing happened like that. But there was a thing called Rabina. Tastes just like tonight. It's yes. gorgeous. It's like raspberries and and strawberry concentrated. It's like cassis, but oh. it's raspberries. Yes. It's, that's what tanat's like. So, Gorgeous. Yeah, yeah, that's that's in that part of the region. Then we move to the Stellenbosch region where we have the most beautiful cabs and Merlots, your more, I want to say, Bordeaux-style cultivars coming out of Stellenbosch. It just gives it that mm. lovely tannin and backbone. Um, and mm. then moving on to, the, obviously, the back of Paul Wellington, uh, which is almost a shift between, I want to say, Rhone style and Bordeaux. I would say the Rhone styles are much more dominant in that region. We even have some yeah. Sinsos, uh, Tempranillo uh, coming out of that region. So really something of everything that we pick up these different areas. And then to end off um, Bot River, we have cool climate, Shiraz and Cabs uh, coming, from, coming from the region. So Sinso, has the KWV got a straight up Sinso? Yes. Uh, but it's unfortunately okay. something that we export. Uh, oh, man, go away. <laughs> Keep some at home for us. <laughs> we are trying. Um, I have to say uh, the seller this year has put out a project uh, that we'll try and make some fancy Sinso and then market it and see what happens. I'm loving some of those Sinsos. And I tell you what you do make, although it's not yours, it's white. Oh, yes. But that Grenache... You make a Grenache Blanc, which yes. I think must come from the Swatland region as well, which if anybody listening hasn't tasted it, they need to rush out, which is why I want to taste your Senso, because I'm sure it's just as nice. Those Rhone varietals are doing so well in South Africa. No, I think so they just really, really are shining. If I can comment my colleague Quibus again, I, he really makes a great Grenache Blanc. Uh, I'm going to say the no, range and Best the Best in the country. Range. Yeah. Oh, it's mm. something magnificent. The KWV had to had to sort of um, drag itself back from a rather motley past, you know, through no fault of its own. It was just one of the nationalist government's babies. Um, so I don't make any apology for it, and I don't think we do need to make apology for it because it produced fabulous wine, and it did pave the way. Whilst it prohibited everybody else from exporting their wine, there weren't that many winemakers at that stage of the game. There weren't that many private farms. And the KWV was the government's, just for everybody else's edification, was the government's arm or conduit through which to export South African wine. And it was really only the KWV that exported wine out of South Africa. And Rudderberg was a very, very big part of that export. Yes. I think at one stage... Rudeberg counted for one in every five bottles of wine that left this country. Yeah, we That's almost worked it out a third of, of the volume. Yeah, yeah, it was very big. So, like with everything, we all come to our senses, we all wake up, we wipe the sleep out of our eyes, and we think, this hasn't been a very inclusive industry, so now we need to make things better, and let's start polishing our, our reputations and our marbles. And I know that the KWV has done a lot to do that, more than anything with the quality of the wine that they are producing. I honestly will put my head on a what's it and say the KWV is producing some of the best wine in the country at the moment. It's fabulous wine. Thank you very much, Kerry. And so, I would say, at, yeah, I would say for the whole industry out there, 
it's the age is past where you can make bad wine. Um, you have to put something good on the market, otherwise you can hurt your brands. And I want to say in today's world where, where a lot of creativity and everything has taken over, everyone is very passionate uh, and our industry is thriving at the moment via the quality that you have on shelf. It is thriving at the moment. And, you know, we are very, very fortunate in South Africa. We can still buy a fabulous quality wine for a very reasonable price. Everywhere else in the world, you've got to remortgage your house to buy a bottle of wine that is the sort of quality of what we're talking about, you know. So it's we're lucky. We're very, very lucky. Armed with all of that, we need, and that's what part of my mission is with my podcasts and my YouTube channel, is to encourage people to drink Oh, that sounds terrible. I know. I'm not, I'll rephrase it. Yes. <laughs> good one. I shouldn't have had a break there. <laughs> so everybody get out there and drink. Rudderberg is still well priced, hey, for what it is. Yes. What's the price of Rudderberg at this stage? It's around about a hundred and something, hey? It is. It depends where you shop, uh, but it is around about anything from 90, 98 rand up until 120. In that bracket. 20 odd, yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's about right, it's about 120. It's unbelievable value at 120 rand a bottle. What's the current blend going into your Ruderberg? So, enough mere, it doesn't have to be. So, the current blend at the moment is the 2021 vintage, which is Shiraz and Cab driven, around about 35 to 34% each cultivar. And then we're running down on a Tanat, which is 8%, uh, Merlot 6%, and Petit Shiraz. Uh, which is around about 10%, and then the rest is made up of other cultivars, which is 1, 2, 3%, uh, which is a total of 6% in total. And you, the, you're its dad. How long should we keep it before we break its virginity? Well, I have to say that you can definitely keep it for, for two to three years without um, having any issues. Um, but as you, if I would invite you to my own house, I've only got six bottles of wine in my wine uh my wine rack because I'm one of those guys that kind of drinks every day of the week <laughs> just to see that, just to check the quality. I'm a very nosy <laughs> person. Top the level up. <laughs> <laughs> so you haven't, what have you got for drink that bottle of wine night on, on the 25th? You haven't got that bottle of wine because you drank it already. Well, I've, I've got one left uh, and that's actually a bottle when I was making wine overseas uh, that has been, been lying there. And I have to say, for this special occasion, I'll be definitely opening opening in the bottle. It's a, a 2013 Cabernet Sauvignon from Stag's Lieb Wine Cellar in Napa Valley. Oh, my gosh. Uh, I was going to ask you about Napa. <laughs> when we finished with Rudeberg and Cab and Fancy KWV and wish you the best, because I think you, I think you're going to make a wonderful, wonderful difference at the KWV. Um, I was, who was I talking to the other day, Brennan? Um, Ruloff, Lotrit. Well, yes. At, at, uh, Delheim. And I just love all you boys. You all the same sort of, um, generation. And you are brave. And you're pushing boundaries. And you, as you say, you're making no excuses for dirty, filthy, TCA infested, bretty, unhealthy sellers and, and unhealthy vineyards. There's no excuse for that anymore. We can't have that. I have to say, it's actually so, so funny that you that you use his name because when he was a student, I was still first, second year and actually helped out at his vintage cellar when he first started out. So we actually came a long oh, way did as well. You? Yeah. No, he's a gorgeous boy. You're all gorgeous. And you're just loving your jobs. 
the wine industry is fun and it's filled with with intelligent, hardworking, ambitious, good people. And I think that's the sort of message that we have to send out to the whole of South Africa and the whole of the world that we really do compete on an international scale. Our wines are right up there with the best. And half the reason that they are is why? Because we've got a very well-educated clan of young winemakers. So education for me is just... We had a grandpa, Scottish grandpa, and his motto was no more. And that wasn't N-O more. <laughs> it was K-N-O more. <laughs> it was no more. Just no more than everyone else. That is else. actually great. So, James. James the man, born and bred where? In the Cape? Yes, in the Cape, in the northern suburbs, uh, Panorama, Valgelegen, uh, in those areas. Okay. Went to Steli's. Yes. Did your... Did my Viticulture and Enology. Yes, at Stellenbosch. Uh, four years. Obviously um, enjoyed the university life a lot. Uh, I have to say my Enjoyed the wine, the six <laughs> wines on the rack, I think. <laughs> well, as my, you can comment my mom on this, but always uh, if we had a phone call, she would say, listen, uh, I know your two main subjects are sport and socialism. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Socializing. <laughs> Socializing, sorry. <laughs> but please, <laughs> give some attention to the course as well. <laughs> Mm, I have a son that did the same. He also went to university in Cape Town. I was in Johannesburg and the phone used to ring at two o'clock in the morning, but it wasn't him. It was the police saying, Mrs. Adams, we've got your son drunk up straat, whatever he was. It was terrible. It's torture. You're gonna, your children are going to do the same to you. You watch. So you left Stelly's and did you go traveling directly once you'd graduated? Did you Go to Napa or you went to New Zealand? Yeah, so actually I was I was in between of doing a master's degree or started to go to go into the work life and went speaking to one of the or a couple of the legends in the industry at that time, they told me that listen, you can always come back and study, but go out and get experience. Uh, go yes. out overseas, go out and do harvests and when you come back, you know, you can always look at that again, but nothing beats experience. Um, so in that sense, uh, I went straight, straight out of the gate. Actually, my first job was in Ashton Cellars. Um, started oh, working really? there at the Steric event, which is also an old KWV uh, production master. Producing uh, huge amounts of wine as well. Yes, Learning and, how to make good, big volumes. And then from there, uh, opt to, to New Zealand. Uh, basically, so I completed mid-harvest, then flew over to New Zealand, had a one weekend off, started in Marlborough at Benham, started the vintage there, and then had two okay. months off after that, and then popped over to Napa um, and started working at Stags Leap. So I completed three vintages in one How year. How did you get a job at Stags Leap? So basically... Were you sleeping with the owner's <laughs> daughter or something? <laughs> hmm? No, uh, nothing <laughs> like that. Um, so You're going red. <laughs> Uh, so luckily, um, my roommate <laughs> that lived with me in New Zealand, he actually just came from a vintage from there. And I told him, well, you know, please hook me up. Uh, and then via him, uh, he was a German. Yeah, we said, yes, no, any time. And went off, you know, without any hiccups. Just for everybody listening to us, Stag's Leap is like the quintessential Napa farm. You dream, you pray to those bottles, you dream of visiting there. I mean, that is just one of the most amazing bits of experience you could ever have had. Yeah, no, definitely. Mm -hmm. I really enjoyed my time there. And um, as I, they saw quite um, 
a lot of attention because I was quite soon the night shift manager uh, on shift for the vintage. Uh, so really, did they really, not tell you that night shift was given to the people they didn't like? <laughs> they they started out like, okay, now it's going to be a rotation job. We're each going to get two weeks, and then after the first week, they said, "Wow, you, you you're doing good, so can we just keep you there?" It's like, oh well, yeah. And they said we'll bump the pay, and it's like, oh no, that's that's good. So definitely, that's I'll... perfect. And and tell me, Stags Leap, what did you make at Stags Leap Cab? Yes, predominantly cab. Obviously, on the wide side, there were Chardonnays, Viewneers. Uh, oh, so jealous. There was uh, also uh, Petit Shiraz. Uh, there was Malbec. Cab, like I said, we mentioned cab. Uh, a lot of the and is the estate beautiful? Oh, it was really something to. Napa is extraordinary. It's exceptional. For me, just the barrel caves, the endless rows of barrels going into underground cellars was really something to see. Uh, so I, I really enjoyed it. Uh, you know, when I was studying, I was very rude about the wine that was coming out of Napa. It was quite big and bold and brash and very sort of Trumpish, you know. It, yeah. was, it was a braggart. Everything that came out of Napa was, was bigger than everything else and better than everything else. And I thought they were a little bit crass and a little bit clumsy, some of them. But that's a long time ago. I mean, you can see I'm old. <laughs> so... Up until about 20 years ago, I didn't pay much attention to them or Australia. I yeah. wasn't mad about the Australian wines. And Napa showed promise, but it was big and, and clumsy. Big wines, yeah. Now, honestly, I can't wait to go. I really I really am dying. It's my, it's on my bucket list. I want to go and spend six months in Napa. Oh, I, the take wines me, take are, me along. <laughs> I'll take you, Jamesy. I'll take you. If we can stay at Stag's Leap for a bit. <laughs> yeah, but then... So how long were you there for? Around uh, about a year, year and a half, plus minus. Um, so after... Then you got homesick. <laughs> well, actually, no. I was I was on my way to Australia, um, in, to Perth, oh. uh, because now I was part of the, the Treasury Group and to do a vintage at Devil's Lair uh, in Moynard. Yes. Starting to learn... Oh, Again, Chardonnays and some Pinot Noirs, um, which obviously mm. did magnificently. And the mm. wrong advice on a visa ended up uh, myself not not being able to go on the day I should have. See, God moves in a mysterious way. Yeah. Um, so flights, everything was booked. I was the flight departure was around about twelve o'clock and nine o'clock that morning. I got my visa back denied. Um, saying it, <laughs> it wasn't a student visa, I was going to earn money, and on that grounds, they said, no, sorry. I was like, oh. oh. So I was quite quite devastated. This was obviously in second week of January. Uh, you know, I haven't lined up any other vintages, and no. I had to I had to spark um, and to see what I could get, and luckily at the end, it kind of worked out well, because I ended up at Flagstone underneath Gerard Swat. Um, oh. And Flagstone, my Brucie Jack. Yes, yes, Brucie's Gorgeous also still man. There. Um, Gorgeous man. So obviously, lovely one. Ended up with them and also learned loads and uh, really, really learned mm. loads from them uh, and enjoyed it. And then you went to Stellenbosch Hills. No, then actually um, via via just the vintage there and ended up. I was actually on my way to Bordeaux uh, to go work under Andre Lurton. Um, because mm. I really wanted to, to, to view Bordeaux. Um, and then the opportunity came to uh, a distal position opened up at Adam Tass under Zonnebloom. Um, and 
by another magnificent iconic brand yeah so my, my friend said listen there's a there's a, a position opening up for assistant red wine maker back then and i said well the, the date already closed so it's not going to help i apply and he said just apply for the thing just get the cv in. and long story short I ended up uh, got the job um, and because it was my first permanent job, uh, I unfortunately said, listen, I can't go to Bordeaux because I've got a permanent job and I'm going to apply for a <laughs> clicks card immediately. <laughs> I'm tired of living out of a bag. Yeah, um, I know. <laughs> so, yeah, <laughs> then started working at the Stell, um, and again, uh, working at one of the big corporates really gives you a whole different perception of the industry I and know. the diversity, uh, what, what happens there. Uh, such good, such good experience for any winemaker. Yes, and then did my time there, and then moved over to Stellenbosch Hills, uh, which in in that sense also uh, worked under Peter Slavert and learned a lot from him. Uh, I have to say we're still very good mates. Uh, he's yes, uh, quite a, a great role model. Obviously, started working a lot. How with did my he hands. replace you? How did he replace you, Jamesy? <laughs> <laughs> well, Who did he replace you with? He got, he got a very competent winemaker called um, Charles Meiberg, a lovely guy, very soft-hearted, um, and uh, I think the relationship between them will definitely soar heights. Uh, and we, I'd say, between myself and Peter, we made an awesome base to work off of. Uh, and oh, gorgeous one. Stellenbosch Hills, lovely one. Yeah, so but I have to say... I'm we, very happy that you're doing what you're doing. If I were to say... Please tell our listeners and our viewers which bottle of wine from the KWV should they be drinking out of their cellar because we've all got one. We've well, all got one that's been lying in the cellar somewhere. What do you think is going to be nice? Well, depending on age, um, obviously if you have a anything Rudiburg connection from 85 up until 95, uh, especially... I think it'll still be drinking nicely. Yes, in that bracket, I have moment. got some. Uh, I would open up one of them. Uh, it's going to be okay. st- the tannins is going to be so silky smooth. There will be some fruit still. Uh, I have to say, I think that'll definitely be a one. But if we're looking something for um, at the moment, uh, especially if you view my my wine rack, so you'll be. <laughs> <laughs> I think a lot of my customers are like you, and I think that they're actually going to have to secretly slink into the liquor store. Um, and buy that bottle of wine because they've drunk all the others. Yeah, so then we're looking at a 2018 to 2020 vintage. Um, and we're staying in the Rudiburg topic. If you haven't had it yet, the Rudiburg Reserve, um, that would be an interesting bottle. Or even the 1949, um, especially for, for this coming Thursday. What's the difference between Rudiburg and Rudiburg Reserve? So the Reserve is a more condensed concentrated smaller volume which is a little bit more barrel aged using only 300 liter French oak cloth uh, where the normal Rudiver classic blend is a little bit bigger uh, has a small component of barrel in it but a large component of stainless steel tanks which is aged with staves or chips uh, for the volume yeah. purpose um, also more mm. uh, I'm going to say area driven uh, coming from all the different areas that we take where the reserve is a little bit more um, only based out of three areas instead of the five. Um, and obviously the blend quality of us is a little bit different. The reserve is also cab shoe. And tell me, do you, is it? Yes. Okay. And do you, you don't have to answer it, do you send 
all that reserve overseas as well? No, luckily Just we saying. don't. <laughs> Just there is definitely available in South Africa at the Emporium here with us, and I, th- I think we sell it in checkers as well. I'm sure you do. I'm sure you do. I've seen Rudabergers. It does well in the in the supermarkets. If I were to say to you, um, in the last decade, your top tips for red vintages. Everybody always says to me, what should I buy if I want something to keep or something that's old or something that's nice? I I don't advocate keeping South African wines for too long. I I think that they probably all reach their best for me around about five, between five and ten years max. But there are wines that you can that you can obviously sell and I know that that um, Johan Kricher would probably kill me if he heard me saying, don't keep Canoncorp for 20 years, because you can. You can actually keep Canoncorp, and you can keep Rist and Friar, and there are some that you can keep, but on balance. So if you're buying for drinking now, and we have a 10-year span, so let's say we're going back to 2012. Between 2012 and now, what's your favorite vintage, or what do you recommend for drinkers? Well, I have to say my favorite would be at the moment anything between 2015 and 2017. Um, I have to say, and that's also like you mentioned, wines that can keep. Um, yeah. Unfortunately, we also live in a in an age where you have to make wine for tomorrow and wine for oh yeah, to, to instant gratification wine. Ten years. Yeah. Uh, but unfortunately, with today's technology and tools, we are getting there. We can do it, um, making wines for. For that's ready to drink now and to age for 10, 15 years. But at the moment, for me, I'll do a 2015 or 2017 vintage. And if you're looking for something that's a little bit more fruit driven, a 2019 vintage. 2019, because that's what I was going to say. For me, everybody shouted from the rooftops for 2015. And it was a good vintage. But there were some horrific wines that came out of 2015. What made 2015 so good? Well, besides being the, the stigma of the, the odd number, you know, there was a, we winemakers yes. are very superstitious people when it comes to odd numbers <laughs> and round numbers. because you spend half your lives drunk, that's why. <laughs> you imagine, it's hallucinatory. <laughs> so obviously you would think the 23 vintage, we are super excited for this year. <laughs> <laughs> And on that note, <laughs> what is the 2023 vintage looking like? Tell us. Well, the 23 vintage definitely has a lot of promise. Um, we didn't have that much rainfall in the 2020 vintage, so we are seeing a little bit of drought. Uh, the, the fruit bunches are smaller, more compact. The berry size of is very small. Uh, I have to say, we, is it? Yes. Uh, we even had to do some settings on the crushers just so that we can puncture the, the grape skin so we can get really? that color extraction out of it. Um, wow. And I have to say, at the moment, on areas we are showing anything between 15 and even 20% down um, on yields. That's good, though. You know, that's nature's way of keeping the pricing good for you boys. Yeah. If it's too voluminous and there's too much of a good thing, you can't charge enough money. And I know that I'm probably going to be shot to ribbons for this as well, but South African wine needs to be... More competitively priced. Yes. No, I, I think there's agree. some cheeky people. There's some very cheeky people who produce a one-minute wonder or a one-vintage wonder. 
and then their wine is 2,000 rand a bottle or whatever. That's cheeky. Yeah. But I think in the category between sort of 60 and 130 rand a bottle, we've got wines that are punching way above their weight. Yeah, okay, so they could They could all be 200 rand. Yeah. And getting back to your earlier question on what, what made 2015s are great is that 2014, actually, we were 6% up in volume on that year. So everyone was scrambling and hiring seller space and all that other stuff and then 2015 rolled around <laughs> and we were down and it was kind of also the same thing like you said it's nature's way of balancing it out uh, so the crop yeah. is so much reduced and uh, there's just magnificent colors and acids on the wines um, mm. and that kind of just you know and obviously we had some uh, great heat that summer so we had nice concentrated RS levels so we had the full yeah. picture yeah. in 2015 yeah yeah and then I think that what I've tasted from 2019, 2019 is probably my favorite vintage of the decade. It's absolutely gorgeous wine from 2019. So that's what we can send out to, to the listeners. So drink that bottle. You are drinking a bottle of Stag's Leap Cabernet. What vintage? Uh, 2013. Was that nice in Napa? I can't remember. It was. Yes, it was. There's no such thing as a horrible stag's leap cab, though. <laughs> so it could be from it could be from 200 AD, and it would still be nicer. It's <laughs> just really nice wine, hey? Yeah, but I have to say, like, so you um, obviously we're in vintage at the moment, um, so I have a lot of wine around me. So after that bottle, um, I would definitely open up a Rudeberg 1949, um, just to, to stay in the vintage. That sounds absolutely gorgeous. And who are you going to share it with? Is there Mrs. Ush? <laughs> um, and little baby Ushies? No, 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 not yet, not yet. Uh, so I'll be sharing it with a, with a special friend, definitely. Okay, good. <laughs> <laughs> James, it's such nice, it's such a pleasure talking to you. And I really am so sorry that I, that I stood you up earlier at 11 o'clock today. I won't ever do it again. And I owe you big, big, big time. So when you come to Johannesburg, we can go into my cellar and you can choose something nice oh, from there. Oh, great. Looking forward to as it. As the last bottle. As our last bottle. Drink that bottle. We'll do a drink that bottle night. Yes. In can. my cellar when you come to Joburg. Thank you so much. Good luck with your harvest. We'll chat again soon. Thank you, Jerry. Have a good one. You too. Okay, bye.